Good morning, everybody. Thank you, John. Thank you, band. It's a great song to segue into what we're going to be talking about today. My hope for this morning is that as we study John chapter 18, that your adoration, your affections for Jesus would just grow as as mine have as, as I've been preparing for our time together this morning. So if you have a Bible, please turn to John 18. We've been in a series in John for about half the time that we've been members of this church, so it's been a long time. Um, we're not quite there yet, but we are kind of on the home stretch now as we enter into John 18. We find ourselves in the midst of what we have called the Passion Week, which is the last week of the life of Christ. And so what the, uh, what the gospel authors do, all of them do this, the first 30, 30 years of the life of Christ, 33 years, they're sprinting through a lot of the details. And then when they get to this last week of Christ, everything slows down. It's as if we kind of enter into slow motion and they begin to give us details of all of the events that are going on in, in his last hours, in his last days. And so we find ourselves here in the midst of this last week, and now we're in the very last days of the life of Jesus, and John is gonna give us some of the details. Remember that John was an eyewitness. He was one of the 12 that went with Jesus, and he saw these very things, as he says in 1 John, with his own eyes, and he heard them with his own ears. He touched Jesus. He talked to Jesus. And so now he, as the last living disciple, He writes down his account and he kind of fills in some of the holes from Matthew, Mark, and Luke's accounts. 90% of John is unique, whereas 60% of Matthew, Mark, and Luke are the same. That's why they're called the synoptic gospels because they see through the same eyes. And so John is gonna add some details that maybe the others didn't include for one reason or another. And so we're now probably on Thursday of the Passion Week, and what Jesus did is he told Peter and John, I want you to go into the city of Jerusalem. There's an upper room there, and I want you to go to that room, and I want you to prepare for the the Passover feast. We're going to celebrate it together. All of the righteous Jews would have traveled together. They would have gone up to Jerusalem um, for this holiday that occurred once a year in the springtime. And so they gathered together, beginning in John chapter 13, Jesus and his disciples entered Jerusalem. They went to this upper room and uh, a whole lot of things happened there. One of the things that happened is we see Jesus say to Judas, hey, go and and do what you're going to do. And so he sends Judas out. We're going to come back to that in this text. Uh, We also see that Jesus breaks bread with his disciples. They have a meal together, and and then he washes the feet of his disciples, and he says to them, you go and do likewise. And he says to the disciples, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. And he says to the disciples, I am the vine, and my Father is the vine dresser. And so he's, he's giving them, in many senses, these are his last commands to them. This is his last time with them. These are his last words with them. And then he tells them that trouble is waiting for them. Things are about to get hard. But he says, but I have overcome the world. And when I leave, there's going to be a helper that's going to come. The Holy Spirit is going to come. But just know that things are about to get hard. They're about to get challenging. And now we get into John chapter 18 is that part of Uh, John is finished, John 13 through 18, we call it the upper room discourse. They're done there, 
and they're leaving this upper room and they're heading outside of the walls of the city of Jerusalem. We pick it up in John 18, verse one. When Jesus had spoken these words, he went out with his disciples across the brook Kidron, where there was a garden which he and his disciples entered. Now Judas, who betrayed him, also knew the place, for Jesus often met there with his disciples. So Judas, having procured a band of soldiers and some officers from the chief priests and the Pharisees, went there with lanterns and torches and weapons. Then Jesus, knowing all that would happen to him, came forward and said to them, Whom do you seek? And they answered him, Jesus of Nazareth. And Jesus said to them, I am he. Judas, who betrayed him, was standing with them. And when Jesus said to them, I am he, they drew back and fell to the ground. And so he asked them again, whom do you seek? And they said, Jesus of Nazareth. And Jesus answered, I told you, I am he. So if you seek me, let these men go. This was to fulfill the word that he had spoken. Of those whom you have given me, I've lost not one. And then Simon Peter, having a sword, drew it and struck the high priest's servant and cut off his right ear. The servant's name was Malchus. So Jesus said to Peter, put your sword into its sheath. Shall I not drink the cup that the Father has given me? Would you pray with me? Father, I pray that you would glorify your son this morning. And just like we talked about at the beginning, I pray that you would grow our affections and our adoration for Jesus, for what he has done for us. This is an amazing text. And so as we study it, God, would you give me wisdom to accurately handle your word, and would you give us hearts that are eager to hear? I pray that your word would fall fresh on us, and that you would sow seeds that would take root, and that you would grow us to be fruit, like a tree planted by streams of living water. We pray this in Christ's name, amen. So the first few verses of John chapter 18 really serve as as transitionary verses out of the upper room discourse. John 13 through 17, we have Jesus up there, and now there's a noticeable change that happens here. So the farewell speech is over, and now there's a scene being set for us. What I want you to see first in this text is this, a cosmic battle is brewing, Up until this point, there have been people that have made accusations against Jesus, but he either slipped away from them or they just walked away because his time had not yet come, but things are now different. There's a battle that's brewing and all of the the settings are coming together in this moment as we get into John chapter 18. This battle began thousands of years earlier. Ironically, it began in a garden where Satan took on the form of a serpent and he came in and he tempted a a sinless man. So we have some parallels here back to Genesis chapter three as we're about to go into another garden and another Adam, he's called the new Adam, is going to come face to face with Satan himself because John tells us that when Judas went out in John chapter 13, it says that Satan came into him. So some really interesting parallels happening here. And since Genesis 3, all of human history has been building like a crescendo. It's been gaining momentum and building to this moment when Jesus would meet face to face with Satan. 
John 18.1 tells us that before they entered into this garden, though, they crossed a brook called the Kidron. In Texas, we call this a creek. Uh, so over in Israel, I get to go every year. It's one of the amazing parts of my job. But Israel is full of what we call wadis. It's like a dry creek bed. And so it doesn't rain a lot there, but when it does rain, there are lots of mountains. And the water comes down the mountains into these wadis and the water forms. They can have a lot of flash floods because the water picks up a lot of momentum. Kidron is one of those. Okay, it's situated between two mountains. You have Mount Moriah and you have the Mount of Olives. So if you look right here, you see the temple right in the very middle of the screen. Just to the right, on the east of that is the Kidron Valley. You see it there. Um, what you don't see is that the temple sits on Mount Moriah, and then on the other side, you have the Mount of Olives. If you would go to the next slide, here's maybe a better picture for you. So this is taken from the Mount of Olives. You see the dome on the rock, the golden dome in the very center. And down below, do you see the green grass? That is the Kidron Valley. Go one more slide. That's what it actually looks like, though. So water comes down, it pulls up, and then it begins to flow. And so it's interesting here, this is the only time in the New Testament that this name, the Kidron Valley, is actually used. It was used in the Old Testament to describe a man named David. And again, the irony here is, is thick, but David, who is king of Israel, he leaves his nation because his nation has betrayed him. And he walks across the Kidron Valley because one of his closest allies has also betrayed him. And he is leaving the city. And these two stories end the same because Absalom and Judas both hang themselves at the end. It's really fascinating to see some of the parallels as we talk about this Kidron brook. The word Kidron means turbid or murky. I had to look up the word turbid. Didn't know what that meant. Um, it means like a dark color. And perhaps the reason why they call this turbid is because just up on that hillside was the temple. And scholars estimate that during the Passover feast, uh, over 200,000 lambs were slaughtered. 200,000. So I want you to try to imagine the amount of blood that would be flowing from 200,000 animals. It was so much blood that many commentators say there was a canal that came down from the temple into the Kidron Valley so that this very valley flowed with blood. And it's at this time of year that Jesus takes his disciples across a brook of flowing blood. The blood is representing uh, atonement for their sin. These people have offered animals to try to get forgiveness and reconciliation with God. Jesus walks across this brook knowing that the next day he is going to be the sacrificial lamb for all of them. This is an amazing text. We're only in verse one. So John says they crossed this brook and then they entered into a garden. Uh, one of the great challenges that we face as Westerners is whether we intend to or not, we come to the Bible with a particular set of lenses on. 
We have a Western mindset, and so often this affects the way that we read Scripture, whether we know it or not. So growing up, uh, I really only encountered one garden, and it was my grandpa's garden. His name was Roy. We called him Papa. Any Papas in the house tonight? This morning, I guess? No, okay. Um, one of the fascinating things about being a grandpa is you don't get to pick your name, right? This guy was Papa, and in his backyard, he grew tomatoes, onions, green beans, and my personal favorite, okra. Every time we went to Papa's house, we had okra. And so I can envision that garden. What I want you to know, though, is this garden was nothing like that one. That's what we think of when we think of a garden. This garden looks something more like this, okay? It was a garden of olive trees. Just a couple months ago, Paul and I were right there. Took this picture. This isn't off the internet. Um, this is maybe where the Garden of Gethsemane was. Could be it. So when you think of garden, don't think of that cultivated plot of ground. Think of this cultivated plot of ground with olive trees. It's an olive orchard. They're all over the place. Um, John doesn't tell us the name of this place, but Matthew and Mark call it Gethsemane, and this is really important as well, because whenever names are used in the Bible, there's, there's almost always a significance to them. This word is no different. The word Gethsemane is a combination of two words. The first one is got, and the second one is shimon. The word got means to crush or to press, and the word shimon means olive or oil, and so Jesus takes his disciples across a bloody brook to a garden where things get crushed. This is pretty fascinating. I'm gonna show you a couple more slides here. How many of you enjoy eating a good olive? Raise your hand, please. How many of you find this picture rather disturbing? Raise your hand. Yeah. Olives, they kind of divide us, don't they? Um, so I want you to picture this fruit, okay? Go to the next slide if you would. The way that you make olive oil is you go and you gather by hand the olives that are on that tree or you beat the tree so that they fall down. You gather them and then you lay them under a heavy stone like this one and you would have a donkey or a person who would drive this stone around and it would crush up the olives, including the pit, because that's where most of the oil is, you're gonna crush up all the pits and it's gonna form just kind of this gooey material that you would then gather together. You're gonna to take all of this pulp-like material and put it into baskets. Go to the next slide, please. You put them into baskets like these and then these baskets go under a heavy weight that crushes them down and you can see in that picture the oil that is flowing from the olives. This is the process uh, that, that they used to undertake to make olive oil. The oil was used for cooking, it was used for fuel, it was used medicinally for ointments, and maybe most significantly, it was also used for anointing. When David was anointed, they would pour oil on his head. So oil, olive oil, was a very significant part of Jewish life and culture. So why did Jesus take his disciples to Gethsemane? I think there's a practical reason and there's a spiritual reason. The practical reason is this. 
Whenever this feast occurred, people came from all over Israel to Jerusalem. You had millions of people descending on one little city, and there was no room. And so practically, the people had to find places to stay. This was springtime because Passover is in the spring, and olives aren't harvested until the fall. And so what you have is you have an empty olive orchard. So perhaps Jesus knew the owner. It says he went there frequently to, to uh, pray, to plan, to rest. Um, they slept there. They camped there. So practically, they just needed a place to stay. But there's such a beautiful picture here that Jesus surely took his disciples there because he knew about the crushing that was about to happen to him. The Gospel of Luke says that his sweat became like drops of blood here at Gethsemane. And Matthew and Mark describe Jesus as being very sorrowful and troubled in this garden. Why was he in so much anguish? Well, here in a place where you crush something in order to get this, this life-giving benefit, this oil, Jesus is about to be crushed in order to be a blessing to the whole world. There's a powerful picture that takes place in Gethsemane. So we get to verse two. Now Judas, who betrayed him, also knew the place, for Jesus went there often with his disciples. So Judas, having procured a band of soldiers and some officers from the chief priests and the Pharisees, went there with lanterns and torches and weapons. What I want you to know is that Judas planned perhaps the biggest conspiracy in the history of the world. They could have arrested Jesus at any point in the daylight. And yet they came in the cover of night. There was probably a full moon because that's when Passover falls. And so here they come. Jesus is not hiding. He goes to the place that he always goes to. And Judas somehow convinced two different groups of people who hated each other to come together in an unholy alliance. You have the Roman soldiers and you have the chief priests. These people could not stand each other. And yet there was one man that they couldn't stand more and his name was Jesus. And so they were willing to come together and, and form this partnership so that they could both have what they wanted. The Romans didn't like Jesus because Jesus said he was the son of God. And the Romans believed that there was only one son of God and his name was Caesar. And the Jews didn't like Jesus because he said he was the son of God. And the Jews believed that there was only one God and they had no comprehension of the triune nature of God. And so they, they both hated Jesus and they came together alongside of Judas to arrest him. I want you to try to picture what this scene would have been like, okay? It's dark outside, there's a full moon. Um, scholars differ as to how many soldiers came, but I wanna show you this image. The word that's used here for band, when it is normally translated, it means a cohort of Roman soldiers. A cohort is one-tenth of a legion. A legion is five to 6,000 soldiers. One-tenth of that would be five to six hundred soldiers. So at the very least, Judas had this at his disposal. Most scholars say he came with at least 200 soldiers. 
And so imagine the disciples are sleeping and they hear the marching and the armor of this many soldiers. And then you have the chief priests. We're talking about hundreds, more people than are in this room right now. That many people came to arrest one man. And they came with weapons and lanterns and swords and torches. This is what the disciples would have woken up to. Imagine their shock, not only that they see this, but when they come to the side of Jesus and they look, and there on the other side is Judas. They just ate dinner with this guy a couple hours earlier. Like they, they just had dinner with him. They spent three years with him. And none of them thought it was him because when Jesus said, one of you is going to betray me, they all said, is it me? Am I the one? And so now they see Judas and he's on that side. Imagine the shock and the dismay as they looked into his eyes. Judas wasn't a believer. He was a deceiver. He loved money more than he loved Jesus. And now his true colors are showing. And so the battle lines are drawn. And now the story picks up. This is where it gets good. The second thing I want you to see is that Jesus, he's worthy of our adoration because he is all-knowing. Verse four, it says, Then Jesus, knowing all that would happen to him, came forward and said to them, Whom do you seek? This is an amazing verse. Jesus, knowing all that would happen to him. Jesus is omniscient. He, he knows it all. It's amazing to think that Jesus, he knew everything that awaited him. He knew the false accusations that were coming. He knew that they were going to spit in his face. He knew that they were going to flog him and mock him and beat him and crucify him. He knew all of this. He knew it. And he came forward. He didn't try to run away. He went to a place where he knew Judas would find him. This is the epitome of courage. He knew what awaited him, and he came forward voluntarily. What I want you to notice in this text is, is that Jesus is the authority. He set the agenda here. They entered the garden, but he stepped forward, and he's the one who asked the questions. And what we're going to see, and this is amazing, is he even tells the soldiers what to do, and they listen to him. He's the authority. Not some centurion. It's not Judas. It's no one else there. It is Jesus. The third thing I want you to see, and this, this is for sure another reason why Jesus is worthy of our adoration, is because Jesus is all-powerful. Verse 5, it says, they answered him. He says, who are you seeking? We're seeking Jesus of Nazareth. I guess they didn't recognize him. Like hundreds of people came for this one man and they don't know who he is. We're looking for Jesus. And so it continues. He said to them, I am he. Is that what your translation says? So one of the fascinating parts about this text is the he was added by the translators because it, it reads better for us, but it's not there. The, the response that Jesus actually gave them is he said, I am. 
I am. This is the divine name of God. Make no, no doubt about it that the chief priests, when he said that, they knew. He's referring back to Exodus 3, when that burning bush appeared to Moses and Moses is supposed to go talk to the Pharaoh and he doesn't want to tell Pharaoh that a bush told him to come and talk to him. And so he says, well, if they ask me who sent me, what should I say? And God says, you tell them I am. I am who I am. So who are you seeking? We're seeking Jesus of Nazareth and Jesus says to them, I am. And the reason we know that this is so powerful is because of what happens next. It says, Judas, who betrayed him, was standing with them. And when Jesus said to them, I am he, they drew back and fell to the ground. Can you imagine the scene? Hundreds of armed soldiers with weapons. They've got swords. They've got torches. Um, they've got numbers. And Jesus simply says, I am. And they all fall down. This is like Philippians 2 coming to life. At the name of Jesus, every knee is going to bow before him. He said two words, and he demonstrated his power over all of them. It's amazing. He's in complete control here. Chris and I were talking about this this week. I wonder how many of them at this moment thought, I think I'm on the wrong side. I am. I wonder how many of them were converted at this moment. Surely there was one. They had spears. They had swords. They had armor. But there was only one person left standing. So verse seven, it says, he asked them again, whom do you seek? And they said, Jesus of Nazareth. And Jesus answered, I told you, I am. So if you seek me, let these men go. This was to fulfill the word that he had spoken. Of those whom you have given me, I have lost not one. Back in John 6. And here's the most amazing part of this text, though. Although Jesus was all-knowing and all-powerful, he was also perfect in humility, and he submitted himself perfectly to the will of the Father. Verse 10, then Simon Peter, having a sword, drew it and struck the high priest's servant and cut off his right ear. The servant's name was Malchus. How'd you like to be that guy? So Jesus said to Peter, put your sword into its sheath. Shall I not drink the cup that the Father has given me? This is another one of those texts that demonstrates how crazy Peter was. You gotta love this guy. He is so zealous. He is so passionate, often just not the right kind of passion. What is Peter doing with the sword? First of all, he's a fisherman. And it's obvious in this text that he does not know how to use the sword because his goal was to decapitate the man and instead he cut off his ear. You don't try to cut off someone's ear. He swung and missed, and he hit the ear. Not only that, but picture the 600 Roman soldiers that are armed. What is Peter going to do? It's 600 on 12. 
and he's ready, right? So he whoops out his sword. The problem is Jesus didn't need his protection. He didn't need it. He could have summoned legions of angels if he wanted to be delivered. Luke tells us that Jesus then healed Malchus's ear, which was an act of grace to his enemy. But it was also an act of grace to Peter because Peter probably would have been arrested and crucified for what he did. So he's protecting Peter and he's, uh, in many senses, offering grace to Malchus. But why does Jesus say to Peter, shall I not drink the cup the Father has given me? Don't miss this verse. Understand this, during the Passover, there are all sorts of traditions. I don't know what your traditions are at Christmas time or some holiday that you celebrate. We have them. But they had traditions that were full of meaning, okay? There were readings and blessings. They ate bitter herbs to remind them of the exodus from Egypt. They broke unleavened bread together, and throughout the course of the meal, they also drank wine. There were several different cups that they drank symbolically every year at the time of the Passover, Jesus and his disciples had just celebrated the Passover hours earlier, and and he instituted something different. He took a tradition that they had had for a long time, and he said, hey, this cup is now my blood shed for you. And this bread that we've been breaking for so long is now my body broken for you. And now he says, shall I not drink the cup? So what is the cup? The cup that Jesus refers to here is the wrath of God. The Bible often speaks of God's wrath in terms of it being a drink, which is kind of weird, but hear these verses. Job 21.20 says, Let their own eyes see their destruction and let them drink of the wrath of the Almighty. Isaiah 51.17 says, Wake yourself, wake yourself, stand up, O Jerusalem, You who have drunk from the hand of the Lord the cup of his wrath, who have drunk to the dregs the bowl, the cup of staggering. So I don't know how many of you like orange juice with a lot of pulp in it, but this is the picture for us, that pulpy, the thick stuff that kind of settles on the bottom. He's saying that they drank all of that to the very dregs. Okay, Jeremiah chapter 25, verse 15, thus says the Lord, the God of Israel, take from my hand this cup of the wine of wrath and make all the nations to whom I send you to drink it. Revelation 14, 9 says, he also will drink the wine of God's wrath poured full strength into the cup of his anger. And so as we wrap up, I want you to just try to imagine the full strength of the wrath of God in a cup. I want you to imagine this cup, not just for your sin, but imagine the wrath of God for every abortion, every rape, every murder, every crime, every broken heart every mass shooting, every abandonment, every injustice, every extortion, every idolatry, every lie ever told. Imagine the wrath of God for that in a cup. Can you imagine taking a sip from that cup? 
This is the cup that's been prepared for Jesus, and it's in this moment that we really begin to understand what Jesus has done for us. Jesus switched our cups. That's the cup that we deserve to drink. The wrath of God Almighty for our sin. And yet Jesus, who deserved to drink the cup of the wine, of the blessing of God, he exchanges cups with us. And he drinks the wrath of the Father down to the very dregs. Shall I not drink the cup that the Father has given me? He drinks the wine of God's wrath, and instead we get the wine of God's blessing. Jesus' perfect obedience deserved his blessing, but instead the righteous one took the cup of wrath so that the sinner would be made righteous. This is what many have called the great exchange. It's amazing. And it is worthy of our adoration. You pray with me. Oh, Father, I pray that you would grow our affections for you as we read a text like John 18, and, and sometimes we just get so far removed from what happened when Jesus suffered and was mocked and was scorned. We shouldn't just think about this once a year, but our lives, our, our very hearts should be transformed by this every day when we're reminded of the weight of our sin and of the grace of our Savior. And so, Father, we just thank you that you sent your Son to die for sinners like me. And Jesus, that you drank the cup of the wrath of the Father so that I didn't have to. Lord, as we uh, continue the study in the coming weeks and we get into some of the harder parts of John 18 and we see the suffering of our Savior, I pray that our affections and our adoration would only grow and that you would produce in us the same kind of humility that Jesus embodied. We pray this in his powerful name. Amen.